I think we're going to make a start. It's after eight o'clock, so um, uh, I slept well last night, so I have the energy to pray this morning myself. <laughs> I don't have to rely on... That's a joke for those who are here, yes. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you have spoken um, to your people uh, throughout history, and thank you that you still speak today. Um, Thank you that the same spirit who inspired the original authors of, of your written word is still alive, illuminating your word today. And we ask that that would be the case this morning, that by your spirit you would make your words come alive, um, that they would resonate in our hearts, that we, we would feed on them, and that our lives would be transformed as a result. Amen. Okay, so um, yesterday, if you weren't here, we uh, looked at this passage, the value of the dry bones, but we, we took a real biblical studies um, approach to understanding the text. So in particular, we looked at the context, how the passage fits uh, both the historical context, what was going on in Israel at the time, um, the fact that it was about, about the exile, um, or at least Ezekiel was speaking to people in exile in Babylon. Uh, but we also looked at the, the canonical context, the, how, where Ezekiel sits in the canon of Scripture and how it relates to other texts, both looking back to Deuteronomy, uh, but also forward to uh, the New Testament and even Revelation. Um, but we also looked at genre, you know, what is the genre of Old Testament prophecy and what are some of the, the keys to reading Old Testament prophecy well? Now, these, these are all kind of academic biblical studies approaches. This morning, I want to do something different, which is reading this particular passage, Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14, uh, closely and paying real attention to the text. How does it speak to, uh, or rather, how, does it, how has it spoken to me um, what are the things that have resonated and what's it meant to, how has God spoken to me through it this week? And I think often we, we see these as two completely different processes. Um, but what I want to emphasize is it's both hand. They are both valid and important processes and in fact they feed each other. If we have a good understanding of what the text means, it allows God to speak to us by his spirit as we read the text even more clearly. It safeguards us from misreading and mishearing what he might be saying. Um, but the other thing I want to demonstrate is, is it sometimes frustrates me when, when speakers say, well, this is the text, this is what it means, and this is how we apply it to our lives, as though there's one application. Um, if, we have, if the text is speaking to us, God can speak in all sorts of different ways and about all sorts of different things. Um, and so... What I'm going to be going through today is just three things that I've noticed as I've reflected on the text this week, and they're quite random, and you know, your three would be completely different. I simply offer them as an e- examples of how the text has spoken to me. And what we're, So what we're going to be looking at is sovereignty. Uh, one of the things that really struck me about this passage was how it emphasizes God's sovereignty. And that set me off on a wild goose chase about sovereignty and how that, how does God's sovereignty actually work in our lives? Um, but another thing was about the, the purpose of God's people. What are, what are God's people for? What's the purpose of the church? Why do we do all this activity? 
Now, what's the outcome that God is looking for from church? And how many of us could actually have an answer to that question? But finally, uh, the final thought is about hope. How does this passage, but also this theme of God bringing life to death, uh, reanimating dead things, how does that give us hope as we read it, but also as we, we reflect on how he does that in many, many different situations, not just with Israel sitting in Babylon in 600 BC. Okay, so here we go. First of all, sovereignty. Um, These are the first three verses. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. He both says, Sovereign Lord, but also his answer demonstrates his uh, understanding that only God can choose. Only God can do it, and only God can choose whether it happens, how it happens, when it happens. God is sovereign. Sovereign Lord, when we read that, it's Adonai Yahweh. It's one of the Old Testament names for God. Uh, the Lord, literally, the Lord Yahweh. But the way we translate, the way English Bibles translate it is, tends to be Sovereign Lord. In this passage, Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14, Sovereign Lord comes up four times. It's like it's hammered home. This is the Sovereign Lord who is doing this thing. Sovereign Lord. It's his choice. He's the boss. Things happen the way he wants them to. He's sovereign. And in fact, it's a, it's a big theme throughout Ezekiel is God's sovereignty. Everything that's happening to the people of Israel is the result of God's will. Um, and it's, it's interesting to reflect on. How often do we think about God's sovereignty? Because it's tricky. It's not easy to understand. Or it would be easy to understand if we were robots. You know, and if, if everything that happened, we could see the direct connection between God pressing a button and the outcome happening. But God's sovereignty works through people who he has created and given choice to. Free will. And he expects his people to exercise free will and choice and good choice. Uh, you know, we, the moment we believe in him, we don't become robots. Or do we? But, but how exactly does that work? In the depths of the human heart, you have God's sovereign will uh, resulting in outcomes, but without trampling on our free will. It's so important. Right from the Garden of Eden, what did God give people? He gave them a choice. He gave them freedom to choose him or not. Um, and it's really important to him that, that humans, there's something that diminishes humans if their free will is taken away, if that choice is taken away. So how does it interact? How do we resolve that apparent contradiction? I think lots of Christians try and resolve it in an either-or way. Um, I love the phrase, um, I'm doing this in God's strength, not mine. And I kind of, yeah, I, I understand the, it sounds good, and it's a good sentiment. I always want to ask, how does that actually work, to do something in God's strength and not mine? You know, does that mean you're just not trying? Are you making any effort at all? You know, what, what's going on in you 
to make it God strengthen it. it. It sounds a bit like a hybrid car, you know, which can either be operating on electric motors and batteries or on the internal combustion engine. And there's a switch somewhere. And you can switch between the two. You know, do you operate in God's strength around town because it's greener, but when you get to the motorway, you need to... Up- How does that work? You know, what does, what does it mean? Um, uh, or or we, re- we, we, re- we resolve it in an either-or way by doing either one or the other. There's a famous, uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal, the story of the woman who refused to get out of bed in the morning until she'd heard God tell her to get out of bed because he was sovereign Lord. And then she wouldn't get dressed until you know, God, she had heard God say, God dressed because she is saying, Lord, you are sovereign, I will obey, like a robot. But just as ridiculous, I think, is the way some Christians talk, which just ignores God's sovereignty. You know, how often have you heard someone say, when we launch this project, we will be extending God's kingdom, as though God's kingdom is something we can extend. You know, if we're doing the extending, doesn't it make it the the kingdom of human, not the kingdom of God? Um... That's not biblical language. You know, what we can do is enter God's kingdom on our knees. But he's the one who does the extending. That's very different language from Ezekiel. Do you hear the difference in tone from Ezekiel? Sovereign Lord, you alone know. You, you choose what happens, when it happens, and how it happens. I think that's just as ridiculous as the... I mean, it's not ridiculous, but I can't... People are kind of ignoring Adonai Yahweh if they're saying we're going to go out and extend God's kingdom, I think, to be slightly provocative. Um, but I, so I, I think it's not either or. I think it's both and. There, there are ways in which God's sovereignty and human free will can cooperate and can coexist. And I think this passage gives us some interesting insights into how that might work. How that might work. Okay? So, first of all, um, we saw yesterday that the way in which God brings his... um, The the way in which God forms his... uh, the, The people of God... In, in, in Christ and through the Spirit, the way he does it is actually a miracle that takes place in the human heart. That's the starting point, it's the foundation, it's the core. God transforms our heart. This is a process that starts in the inside and works outward. The Spirit of God transforms our heart so that fundamentally, instead of turning away from him, we turn towards him. He places in our hearts, there are various metaphors, he, he, um, he's, uh, he circumcises our hearts. He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. But the end result is that we want to love God. We want to be faithful to, to him. And only he can do that. That is a sovereign act to transform our heart, to transform us from the inside. There's nothing we can do to affect that change. And that's the change that Moses was 
looking far, for, far into the future and seeing is the, the transformation that Ezekiel was looking forward to in this passage, the dry bones. Um, this is something only God can do. But once he's done it, that potential, that, 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 um, that transformed heart results in a new human being, a transformed human being. Over time, that, that seed grows to maturity. And as it does so, we are transformed from the inside out. We become a new person. It's almost like we're being, to coin a phrase, born again, and then growing to matur- maturity and becoming new people. And then as those new people reach maturity, they will be making all sorts of choices. They'll be saying all sorts of words. They'll be doing all sorts of stuff, which is the natural result. It's the fruit of being a different kind of person. But all of those actions and words and choices will be freely taken. There's there's no compulsion there. There's no kind of self-management there. You know, it's impossible to try and control all of those things to get the right result. It's just the free, natural expression of who they have become, if you see what I mean. And so you get the end result, which is the result of a sovereign transformation of the person, and yet it's, it's affected by an independent, free um, human being. It's both and. It's free will and freedom and choice working with God's sovereignty. It's a natural expression of who they are. And also it's more about, I I would suggest, it's more about the way these new people do things than specifically what they do. these these choices, these actions, these words will be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, because they are the fruit of the Spirit's work in the human heart. But it's both and. It's not either or. This free whole person, this new person, is the result of a sovereign act of God. Secondly, um, Should we say, well, it's God, God is sovereign. He's Adonai Yahweh, so she, we should just let him get on with it. It's nothing to do with us. If he wants to transform me, then he jolly well can. And great, I look forward to the outcome. Let me know when it's complete. No, of course not. That whole, pro- because he respects our free will, that whole process of him, him transforming us from the inside is is something that happens cooperatively. And it's the result of a posture towards him. First of all, it's, it's a recognition that, there is, that we cannot do this ourselves. If we try and be the people of God without him transforming us, we are doomed to failure. Unless we think that we are any smarter, wiser, or stronger than, than Israel were. No, they're human, we're human. If we, try, if we try and do it, and, and in fact, I try and do it often. I think, oh, yeah, I can get away with this. You know, I can do this talk. You know, I'll just cobble something together, like I thought last night. Joking. 
<laughs> but you know, we, we, can, we can, that there is something in us still that, that thinks, yeah, I could probably carry it off. But actually, Adonai Yahweh, sovereign Lord, no. I know that the whole history of Israel and Israel's tragic demise in exile is a huge warning that on our own, we cannot, do, we cannot be the people that God wants us to be. And so it starts with coming to him and saying, Lord, I'm entirely dependent on you. you know, if I'm transformed into this kind of person that you want me to be, it will be the result of you working in me. So please, you know, do it. And, and we maintain that humble posture, that Adonai Yahweh posture. And we say, uh, we, we invite him to, to start that transformation. And then we continue to place ourselves in a, pos- in a humble posture where we're saying, Lord, continue to bring that work to maturity. You know, help me to, the, there are various Pauline phrases that Paul, Paul uses to, to describe this process. He talks about keeping in step with the Spirit, walking in the light, living by the Spirit. So day by day, walking with our faces turned towards Jesus, expecting him to work in our hearts. And if, if we maintain that posture, then we are inviting him, we are allowing him to effect that change. It's free will and it's God's sovereignty working hand in hand. I think the, the best expression of this, I know, is C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity. I just love this. Um, that is why the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings coming in out of the wind. We can only do it for moments at first. But from those moments, the new sort of life will be spreading through our system because now we're letting him work at the right part of us. It's the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or a stain which soaks right through. To me, excuse me, to me that sums it up. It's that posture of living before God with our face turned towards him, saying, Lord, I'm yours that affects that transformation deep within us, which then grows and, and, and bears fruit in all of our actions, choices, words. It's both and and working together. Both and working together. Finally, look at this exchange. I love this. So this is again back to Ezekiel 37. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? This is sovereignty in action. And it starts with, God asking Ezekiel a question. I would suggest that what sovereignty looks like in practice, the way God wants sovereignty to work, is it's a conversation. It's a conversational process. Yes, it's God's choice. Yes, he's the one who does it. Yes, he's the boss. Yes, he's in charge. And he invites us into the process. 
He asks what Ezekiel thinks. Now, what kind of sovereign, what kind of sovereign operates like that? Well, this kind, Adonai Yahweh. He invites Ezekiel into the process. And Ezekiel takes the opportunity to wreck it, to be humble and to say, you alone know. He respects God and says, you're, you're Adonai Yahweh, you're sovereign Lord. Only you can choose. <laughs> and then God says, yeah, well done, that's right. But now you get involved in doing it. Not, okay, I'll fix it then. I'll make these bones live. No, you prophesy to these bones. He creates a role for Ezekiel to operate, to operate God's sovereignty. Do you see what I mean? And so it's, it's not an equal partnership. One of, the, one of the people in this partnership is Adonai Yahweh. There's only one of those. And both can't be Adonai Yahweh. So it's not an equal partnership. And yet it is a partnership of respect. Um, it's a partnership of respect and cooperation involving two free, mature, independent, responsible people. And I find it deeply attractive. I think sometimes we, we see God's sovereignty as somehow overbearing and controlling. What we fail to see is how it operates in practice. It's all about cooperation and partnership and invitation. And it's, it's good stuff. So it's both and. Both and. Sovereignty, free will, working together. Okay. So that, that's sovereignty. Uh, the second set of thoughts I had was all about purpose. And it was this verse that seemed to resonate. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And for some reason, that army thing jarred. And I thought, well, what's that mean? You know, in what sense are we an army? You know, it sounds very militaristic. I mean, various regimes in the past... Christian regimes have used this to justify, you know, increased military spending, you know, because obviously God's people need weapons. Um, now, obviously, I don't think that's right. But in what sense are we an army? I mean, I think it really spoke to um, the Israelites in exile because they'd been just been crushed militarily by a massive army. And so the idea that Israel's future involved becoming a vast army it must have been quite encouraging. But what does it mean for us? Sorry, I'm a bit phlegmy today. Uh, I've got some water, but it's a good prompt, Andrew, because I think what I need to do is use it. So, so sometimes we have the gifts and we just don't use them. Okay, so the thing that struck me in reflecting about this is armies have a clear purpose. Everyone knows what the job of the army is. Um, <laughs> to be a bit provocative, armies don't work from home by Zoom. You, know, you actually have to turn up because there is a real job to do. <laughs> Just channeling my Jacob Rees-Mogg there. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so, but armies have a clear purpose. What about the church? 
how clear are we about what the church is for? We often know what the church should do. We're very busy with lots of activity. But ultimately, and, and it's clear what the immediate aim of all those activities is, but add it all together, what is the church for? What is God's desired outcome from having a people? Um, I reckon if you ask 10 different Christians that question, what is the church for, you'd probably get 11 different answers. Um, So what's it for? And and I think that's a problem. That's a real problem for two reasons. Firstly, if if there isn't a good case for being the church, if there isn't a good reason for having a church, a lot of Christians will say, well, why bother then? And as as, uh, organized Christians, established church Christianity has become less the cultural norm, vast numbers of believers have said to themselves, well, I don't need to then. It's extraordinary the number of people, particularly in the US, but also increasingly in this country, the number of people who would say, I am a believer in Jesus, I follow Jesus, but they operate entirely independently. You know, church for them means getting some teaching online on a Sunday morning and then meeting up with their friends in the pub. They don't actually see themselves as part of a local community. Um, that's one problem. Another problem is within those who are part of the local community, there's, also, there's an incredible number of conflicts which are created because we don't understand what it's all for. And so we focus on those individual activities And different people have different priorities for those activities. Some people are really into worship. Others are really into social justice. Others are really into teaching. Others are really into evangelism. And each of them feel passionately about that particular activity. And so rather than seeing how they all work together to produce the outcome that God wants, often those things are seen as in competition with with one another. And and members of the church can get annoyed with one another because they seem to be focused on this, whereas we all know that this is the more important thing. All of that stuff can be resolved if we share an understanding of what it's all for, I would suggest. And I think the answer, we, we touched on it yesterday, the answer is wrapped up in continuity. It's recognizing that uh, the There's a huge continuity between the story of Israel, what God wanted from his people in the Old Testament, and what he wants from his people today. Now, I suggested yesterday that the only thing wrong with the law was the human heart. The only thing thing wrong with plan A was this problem of the human heart. The only thing that God was going to resolve in future was to transform the human heart. And then the plan would work. It's just that once he had resolved the problem of the human heart, then all of that stuff, the law, the priests, the temple, the sacrifices, became redundant. Because God's people would start to live out the right stuff without needing all that external control. Um, And we see it again and again in this passage. Um, Who is it? that Ezekiel sees coming back to life in the future, it's the bones of Israel. He's talking to the exiles about the church. He's looking forward to the church, this new people that would be born by the Spirit. 
He's describing the church. But in describing them, he's talking about the bones of Israel. And, he, and that pronoun, this is what's going to happen to you, you and your descendants. Be encouraged because this is what's going to happen to you. It's not this is another group that's going to you know, replace you in the, in the far distant future. And we see the same thing picked up in the New Testament. What's Paul's word for the church? Greek word, ecclesia. That's a Deuteronomy word. Did you know that? In the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, the word used in Deuteronomy to describe the assembly of God's people is ecclesia. Also, ekloge is, is the word for the elect, the called, the chosen. Um, and it's simply because in Deuteronomy, the Greek translation it uses the word ekloge to describe the chosen people of God because Israel were the chosen people of God. And so Paul borrows that name for the label for the new local church. And theologians get themselves terribly wrapped up in debates about predestination. In what sense are we chosen? Well, it's just the label that he's borrowed from the Old Testament. We are, they were the chosen people out of all the nations, so we are the new chosen people. We are the new Israel. Galatians 6, Paul addresses the church in Galatia and says, you are the Israel of God. And in fact, he says, if you abandon circumcision, you are the Israel of God. He's messing with their heads. But he's saying everything that Israel was for, you are for now. And so I'd suggest that all the practices, the paraphernalia, that went with Jewish religion and the original Israel, they are now redundant. They have been superseded and improved on by Christ and the Spirit. And so we don't need all that stuff. But I would suggest that the outcome God wants, the purpose, is still the same. God wanted a people who would love him. That's the fundamental thing. That's the core and, but they would express that love for him through right, right worship and right relationships between them. They would love one another. So that, and this is the key, so that the world would see. The world would see that Yahweh was God and, so, and the world would see what Yahweh was like by looking at his people. The, the people of God are God's shop window. They're his advert. They're his argument to the watching world. They're an evangelistic tool. They're the evangelistic tool that God thought up. They're the most powerful evangelistic tool there is. Um, we see this again and again in Ezekiel. Um, there's, there's something that theolo theologians call the recognition formula, which is this phrase that crops up everywhere in the Old Testament so that they may know that I am the Lord. If you read Exodus, um, all, God announces to Moses what he's going to do. He's going to smite the people. You know, in this argument with Pharaoh, he's going to bring plagues of locusts and he's going to bring you know, all the stuff that he brings. And he explains why he's doing it. And each time he repeats this recognition formula, so that they recognize that I am the Lord. And he's speaking to, to Pharaoh, so that you will know that I am the Lord. That, that's the formula that God uses to explain why he's doing stuff. 
But there's an amazing switch that happens as the people of God enter the promised land. From now on, when God talks about why things are happening in his people, his reason is so that they may know that I am the Lord. So that people watching will know that I am the Lord. And so the miracles that happened with Pharaoh in Egypt are now being superseded by the miracle that's happening as this people is being formed. That's God's convincing case that he is God. That's Yahweh's case that he is God. Look at my handiwork. It was messing up Egypt, but now it's creating this people of God that only I can do. This is my handiwork. If you want to be impressed by God, look at his people. Um... And this resolves so many things. If, if we can get this in our head. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd also suggest if, if, if we read the New Testament with that framework, it makes sense of so much that happens that we read in the New Testament. For example, Paul's letters. I, I, I often think we don't really read Paul's letters. We read Paul's sentences. We read his verses. We often don't read his letters as letters. And if we did, we'd notice a pattern. It's amazing how many of them have the same structure. The first half of most of Paul's letters is theology. And he's explaining what God has done in Jesus and through the Spirit. And then there's, there's sometimes an implicit, but sometimes an explicit, therefore. Because God has done this, in Jesus and through the Spirit, therefore, and what comes next? Therefore, and he starts giving ethical instruction about how these communities should act with one another. Count up the number of one another's in Paul's letters. They should love one another. They should serve one another. They should be generous to one another. Now, why is Paul, who apparently is so anti-the law, laying down the law? Why is he so interested in the behavior of church members? Why is he so interested in uh, family relationships, husbands and wives, sex, work, uh, all of these different things, generosity? Why does he want to, why is it so important to him that their lives change? Why is ethics the result of theology? Because he understands the purpose of the church. The church should live differently. They should love one another so that the world may know that Yahweh is God. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, Alice's thing about sex, I think she got it absolutely right. Sexuality. Well, Paul doesn't bang on about sex in order that we can be the world's policemen, going around saying, cut that out, that's disgusting. No. These, these are letters to churches. And they're, they're letters in order to make the church different from the world. In order to make the church stand out. The Romans said, Romans looked at the church and said these are extraordinary people. They share their bread, but not their beds. The, the Romans knew that these were different people. And, and the, the, um, the church's attitude to sex was one of the things that marked it out as completely different. And the Romans scratched their heads and said, these are crazy people. We don't understand why they're like this, but they knew they were different. 
Um, I, when I studied uh, at Trinity, there was a guy um, in the year after me who was, was quite uh, candid about the fact that he experienced same-sex attraction. You know, he really struggled with same-sex attraction. But he had decided that what he needed to do was be celibate. That was his choice. He said the only way to be faithful to, um, to Jesus was to choose to make the sacrifice of being celibate. But he said the thing that made it difficult was church leaders who tried to welcome the world by meeting the world and by being like the world and saying it doesn't really matter. You know, all that stuff in, in, in Paul about sex, well, it kind of, they, they toned it down in order to provide a bigger front door to the world. Yeah, so. Now you may say, yeah, but if the, if the church is God's shop window, if the church is God's argument, does that really work? I mean, look at the state of the church today. How can that be the case, that that's God's best argument? The church is God's best argument. Do you really mean that? Yes, I do. Because I would suggest there's an enormous difference between the state of the institution and what you read about the state of the institution. There's a difference between that and the experience, the the taste of the people of God in a local community. Um, A few years ago, I went to Saddleback Church and I'd, I'd never been to one of these big American churches before, and I was highly skeptical. I thought, you know, yeah, it, it must be some slick operation. It's, all, it's going to be all about management techniques. And there was this conference, this preaching conference at Saddleback. And so I went, well, I went there with all my skepticism, and I was blown away. Because every person, every member of Saddleback Church who was helping the conference to run by, you know, giving out coffees and, and tidying up the chairs... And, they were all marked by this incredible combination of service and joy. They were just happy to be serving all of these people. And it was staggering. And you thought, How they, what kind of management techniques have they used to result in this behavior? Because most businesses would kill for this. And so that was one thought. And then I thought about, I, I spent a year working in Japan. And when I was in Japan, I joined the Ozaki Christo Kyokai, which was the nearest Christian church to where I live in Gifu, Gifu city, north of Nagoya. And this was a bunch of 30 believers who met in, a, in someone's garage. And they had an American missionary, and she was the most mixed up of them all. They were sorting her out. She was meant, she was meant to be supporting them. It was, it was fabulous. But they were so, they loved her and they were so generous and kind to her. But I think of them and they, they were the most gentle people. They were so kind and they were so gentle. The, um, the pastor's wife was the only one who spoke English. So for a year, she sat next to me in every service and translated the sermon. And every week I'd say to her, you really don't need to do this. And she'd smile. She'd smile and say, no, it's good for my English. And they were so welcoming to a, you know, a gaijin from Bristol. And every, every, um, every Sunday lunchtime, after the service, they'd go and have lunch together. In the summer, it was in the park. They'd have a picnic. 
in the winter it was in, a, in this cafe they'd b- book a big table in the corner but they were wonderful um, I think of visiting a, church, a, a Lutheran church. we look, looked at Luther yesterday Martin Luther um, I went to a Lutheran church in Erfurt which is just west of Leipzig and they were good people they were so admirable they were kind of honourable strong good people and they loved each other and I thought oh, I wish I lived in Erfurt then I could join this wouldn't it be amazing to be part of this church and then I think about um, what were they called Hope Community Church and I spent a weekend with them in, back in 22 and it was just wonderful because they loved one another don't be, don't be confused by the difference between the state of the institution and what you read about the state of the institution and the experience of being with God's people. Uh, it needs to be tasted. And once it's tasted, it's irresistible. You'll want more. So, fine, how are we doing? Um, have I overrun yet? I have. (laughs) It was, yeah, it it was a closed question. You gave me the right answer. So So I I offer you a choice as people with free will. We can either stop stop there or we can carry on for a little bit more. (laughs) No, 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 you got the wrong guy. <laughs> so, um, final thought. I'll, we read this. Uh, the final thought that struck me is this is a this is Ezekiel talking about Israel. He's talking about he's talking to the people in exile, and he's looking forward to the birth of the church. But I think this metaphor applies everywhere because this is what God does. This is what God has always done. He's always brought life to things that seem dead. And it applies in all sorts of situations, not just in forming a new people, but in all of our lives, in endless situations. And the, the thing that made me think about it was... Oh, was this. Um, there's a real focus in this about breath. Breath. The, 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 story, the way Ezekiel tells it, or the way the writer writes it, seems to draw tension. Are we, are we struggling? Should we stop it there? Uh, okay. I don't want to keep you. All right. So, yes. The ten times in this passage, in 14 verses... Um, Ezekiel uses the word ruach. Now, sometimes we translate it as breath, sometimes as spirit, sometimes as wind in this passage. But each time in, in the Hebrew is ruach. What's that an echo of? The creation story? God's spirit hovers over the surface of the water, ruach, and then he forms man out of the dust, he forms human out of the dust, but there's no life in him yet. And then he breathes on him, and ruach enters 
enters Adam and he, and he lives. He lives. This is Ruach. At the end of John's Gospel, John 20, Jesus breathes on his disciples <laughs> and says, receive my spirit. Um, and the, on the day of Pentecost, what's the sound that the disciples hear as the spirit comes? The sound of the wind. Okay, and I think what we see there is this idea. That as we look throughout history, God is doing the same kind of stuff. God is doing the same kind of stuff. And I think to my own life, um, three years ago, I, uh, I know some of you know this, I uh, experienced burnout. And it was a kind of death. Mental health can be a real situation which is like this. Uh, where it seems like you're not dying physically, you're still alive. But everything dies. Um, initially, it was just I'd, I'd wake up in the morning trembling and panicky and you know heart racing, and I'd just wake up in that state and not know why. But then there was a day when I was sitting in the office and I had a list of seven things to do, and they were simple things like write this email, make this phone call, and I simply couldn't do them. All the stuff you need, these, all the stuff you take for granted to do simple tasks, the, you know, the confidence, the energy, the motivation, the, the optimism. It was just gone. And I, I couldn't do it. I sat there and I couldn't lift the phone. Um, but then I look at what God has done in my life over the last three years. It has been a process of, in mental health terms, bringing the dead back to life. Um, and the way he's done it has been, I mean, the, the mental health is a funny thing, you know, and that, um, I, I was seeing doctors and psychologists and, you know, the, they asked the question they always ask, which is, have you had suicidal thoughts? And the truth was, no, I hadn't. But at the same time, I didn't really care if I lived or died. I didn't have hope that there was a future. Um, but God carried me through. And I, I kept on having this, um, this impression that God was saying to me, it was like I was staying with him. I'd, I couldn't hear him like I normally was used to. I wasn't aware of his presence. But I just had this knowledge that I was staying in his cottage. It was, I never knew God lived in a cottage. But it was a, ni a nice cottage on the edge of the woods and I was his guest, but he was downstairs managing things. He was pottering around in the kitchen, whereas I was upstairs asleep, and he was leaving me alone in order to sleep. And it was that picture that kind of carried me through that said, he's in control, he knows what I need. That's why, that's why he's silent at the moment. But it will get better. This is just for a period. And... I think the thing is, when we read this story, God's doing what he's always done, which is to bring new life to dead things. And I think it applies in all of our lives. We all, from time to time, come across situations which are dead and where we think this will need a miracle. This will need a miracle. Surely this is it. 
there is no future. This story and my experience say that's not true. This is what God does. He brings life in places which seem dead. Amen.